host Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. Happy New Year everyone! I hope you all managed to take a break and relax this holiday season and are ready to tackle 2020. As for my absence, I am busy writing the scripts for the next few months worth of episodes and I've also had to work on some personal goals of mine. Uh, I super appreciate your patience. Today I wanted to go back and look at something that was mentioned previously but in more depth the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. Okay, I know I said we were done with treaties, and we are. Remember, this is not a treaty. And when I was asking around as to what people wanted to listen to, human rights came up quite often, so while I'm busy writing the scripts, this is quite a nice and easy one to go through. More specifically, we will just be quickly running through the articles of the Charter themselves, and then we will focus a little bit more on Article 51. Um, and then we'll be going through a little bit of case law as well, demonstrating how the law can be interpreted in many ways by the courts, even by the Court of Justice of the EU. Sources for today include the treaties themselves, of course, websites from the European Parliament, a study concerning citizens' rights and constitutional affairs, written by Durham Professor Eleanor Spaventa and Seanad Armadsochi from the Policy Department of the European Parliament, and in particular, a working paper of the Charter written by David Anderson QC and Kean Murphy. As always, you can find all of the sources in the description box. Just before we start, I'd like to remind you all that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. So, as we know from the previous episode, there was a European Council meeting in Nice. The conclusion of the meeting was a proclamation of a Charter of Fundamental Rights, which would combine in a single text the civil, political, economic, social and societal rights laid down in a variety of international, European or national sources. And as problematic as the UK always seems to be, it opposed the Charter of Fundamental Rights, so therefore it could not be incorporated in the subsequent Treaty of Nice, and the announcement ended up only being symbolic in nature. Now, while the Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, from here on out I'll only refer to it as the Charter, was not incorporated directly into the Lisbon Treaty, the Lisbon Treaty did, however, give it a legally binding character through Article 6, giving it the same legal value as treaties. As to why there is a charter, it allowed for all the rights of individuals that were created at various times, places, methods and forms to be in one single document, to be continuously updated as society, social progress, technological and scientific developments progresses and changes. Now, before we begin, it is important to remember that the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union is not the same as the European Convention on Human Rights, and they operate in different legal frameworks. The Charter was drafted by the Union, and it is the Court of Justice of the EU that interprets it, whereas the Convention on Human Rights was drafted by the Strasbourg Council of Europe and is interpreted by the European Court of Human Rights. The Charter is often seen as, quote, the overarching framework for human rights in the EU, of which the Convention forms only one part, albeit an important one. Of course, they are both consistent with one another, or they try to be, and often when the Charter mentions rights that originate from the Convention, the scope and meaning are the same. It may also have another purpose. As stated by Anderson QC and Kean Murphy, by giving the Charter the same legal value as treaties and conventions, member states and institutions, quote, have finally articulated a detailed Bill of Rights for the EU, which in itself is gratifying for those who saw the Charter as a vehicle for improving the constitutional and political legitimacy of the Union. Anderson and Murphy further envision that, while the Charter may, quote, never achieve in Europe the level of popular awareness enjoyed by the Bill of Rights in the US, it is the domestication in a single place of so comprehensive a range of rights 
that will prompt European lawyers, judges and students to read them, to become familiar with them and most importantly apply them. The Charter itself is very, very short in comparison to some of the treaties we've already looked at before, so I thought we'd go through it step by step. The main issues it addresses is dignity, freedoms, equality, solidarity, citizens' rights, justice, and then the general provisions governing the interpretation and application of the Charter itself. The preamble of the Charter lays down the values the Union was founded upon, the indivisible, universal values of human dignity, freedom, equality and solidarity, based on the principles of democracy and the rule of law. The Union places the individual at the heart of its activities by establishing the citizenship of the Union and by creating an area of freedom, security and justice. The Union endeavours, by creating an ever closer Union, to have people of Europe share a peaceful future based on these common values. These themes we're all familiar with from previous episodes. To achieve this, it is necessary to strengthen the protection of fundamental rights in the light of changes in society, social progress and scientific and technological development by making these rights more visible and available to citizens. The Union gathers the rights from constitutional traditions and international obligations common to member states, the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, social charters and case law of the Court of Justice of the EU and the European Courts of Human Rights. Okay, starting with Title I, Human Dignity which only has five articles, but as you'll come to see, they're pretty vital, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard of these before. Article 1. Human dignity is inviolable and must be respected and protected. Article 2. Everyone has the right to life, and no one shall be condemned to the death penalty or executed. Article 3. Everyone has the right to respect for his or her physical and mental integrity. Concerning medicine and biology, the free and informed consent of the person must be respected, the prohibition of eugenic practices, prohibition of making the human body and its parts as a source of financial gain, and prohibition of reproductive cloning on human beings must be respected in particular. Article 4. No one shall be subjected to torture, to inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. Article 5. No one shall be held in slavery or servitude, no one shall be required to perform forced or compulsory labour, and trafficking in human beings is prohibited. Title II addresses freedoms, things like the right to liberty and security, respect for private and family life. It includes the protection of personal data now, this is an example of an updated version of the Charter. The right to marry and the right to found a family, the freedom of thought, conscience and religion, freedom of expression and information, freedom of assembly and association, freedom of the arts and sciences, right to education, freedom to choose an occupation and right to engage in work, freedom to conduct a business, right to property, which includes intellectual property, right to asylum, which is guaranteed with due respect for the rules of the 1951 Geneva Convention and its 1967 protocol, and lastly, protection in the event of removal, expulsion or extradition. This one has come up quite a fair few times in my studies, actually, and is particularly relevant in today's political climate. No one may be removed, expelled or extradited to a state where there is a serious risk that he or she would be subjected to the death penalty, torture or other inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Title 3. Equality. Everyone is equal before the law. There is to be no discrimination based on any ground such as sex, race, colour, ethnic or social origin, genetic features, language, religion or belief, political or any other opinion, membership of a national minority, property, birth, disability, age or sexual orientation. When it comes to nationality, within the scope of application of the treaties and without prejudice to any of their specific provisions, any discrimination on grounds of nationality shall be prohibited. 
the union shall respect cultural, religious and linguistic diversity and equality between men and women in all areas must be ensured, including employment, work and pay. Article 24 talks about the rights of the child, which has its own UN convention and various other treaties, and covers the right to such protection and care as is necessary for their well-being. They may express their views freely, and such views shall be taken into consideration on matters which concern them in accordance with their age and maturity. This actually reminds me very much of a case that has just been brought forward, I believe at the beginning of this year, by Susan Evans, a former psychiatric nurse working for an NHS foundation trust. She says, quote, children cannot consent to transgender treatment, claiming that many are autistic, homosexual, or just confused. Obviously, this is a hugely controversial case and many transgender children's charities have not taken kindly to the news. I'm going to be linking this case in the description box in case any of you want to read further about this. It's going to be quite interesting to see how it turns out. And of course, as stated by the Charter in Article 24, the child's best interests must be a primary consideration. Moving on to the rights of the elderly, the union recognising and respecting the rights of the elderly to lead a life of dignity and independence and to participate in social and cultural life. And then there lastly is an article on integration of persons with disabilities. All right, Title 4, Solidarity. This one is quite straightforward. It addresses the workers' right to information and consultation within the undertaking, the right of collective bargaining and action, right of access to placement services, the protection in the event of unjustified dismissal, the right to working conditions with respect to his or her health, safety and dignity. Now, and then this one is under fair and just working conditions, the prohibition of child labour and the protection of young people at work. Uh, Under family and professional life, we have the family shall enjoy legal, economic and social protection. Then we have society, security and social assistance, healthcare, access to services of general economic interest, environmental and consumer protection. The reason why I sort of just list these rather than go through them a bit more is because the articles are literally worded very simply. For example, union policy shall have a high level of consumer protection. Um, Everyone has the right of access to preventative healthcare and the right to benefit from medical treatment. Uh, Very simple. Naturally, when it comes to case law and human rights, it's not that simple, but for the purpose of this episode, I didn't want to focus on this title too much. Title 5. This one is even shorter. It includes the right to vote and to stand as a candidate at elections to the European Parliament, the right to vote and to stand as a candidate at municipal elections. The next one is a right to good administration, which is every person has the right to have his or her affairs handled impartially, fairly and within the reasonable time by the institutions, bodies, offices and agencies of the union. Uh, Then we've got the right of access to documents, the European abundancement, the right to petition, freedom of movement and of residence and diplomatic and consular protection. Okay, if that one was short, this one is even shorter. Title six, the right to an effective remedy and to a fair trial presumption of innocence until proven guilty, and right of defence, principles of legality and proportionality of criminal offences and penalties, and then the right not to be tried or punished twice in criminal proceedings for the same criminal offence. The final title, Title 7, concerns the general provisions governing the interpretation and application of the Charter. I'm going to be focusing on this one a little bit when it comes to the case law. It has four articles, the field of application, the scope and interpretation of rights and principles, the level of protection and the prohibition of abuse of rights. Article 51, the field of application article, is of particular importance as it determines the scope of the Charter's application. It is worded as follows. The provisions of this Charter are addressed to the institutions, bodies and offices and agencies of the Union with due regard for the principle of subsidiarity 
and to the member states only when they are implementing union law. They shall therefore respect the rights, observe the principles and promote the application thereof in accordance with their respective powers and respecting the limits of the powers of the union as conferred on it in the treaties. We can condense this wording down. It means that the Charter applies to the acts of EU institutions and to member states only when they are implementing EU law. Article 51, brackets 2, is worded as follows. The Charter does not extend the field of application of union law beyond the powers of the union or establish any new power or task for the union or modify powers and tasks as defined in the treaties. The meaning of this is pretty evident. The Charter does not extend the field of application of the union in any way beyond the powers it normally has and it doesn't give it any additional powers or competences. Now I'm going to run through some case law where the Court of Justice of the EU determined that a remote connection with EU law can trigger the application of the Charter and then where it was found to not be applicable. We'll start with the former, namely the case of Ackerberg Franzen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we'll move on. Here the court, quote, gave a very broad interpretation of the connection required between EU and national law for the purposes of applying the Charter to act of national authorities. The facts of this case itself concern national proceedings focused on tax fraud, which included an element of VAT fraud. To wrap up the facts of the case quite quickly, Franzen wanted the Charter to apply, especially Article 50, which states, no one shall be liable to be tried or punished again in criminal proceedings for an offence for which he or she has already been finally acquitted or convicted within the union in accordance with the law. This is also known as the Nibis in Eden principle, which literally translate to not twice against the same. So you've got a little bit of Latin in there. Now, he was not relying on a particular provision of EU law. However, the court found that the charter was indeed applicable as, quote, a loss of revenue arising from failed collection of VAT also entailed a loss of revenue for the EU budget. This ruling was received with, quote, certain perplexity by scholars and hostility by the member states. They thought the link between EU law and the case was far too insubstantial and too remote. While the court has since then uh, shown a more restrictive interpretation of the connection needed, the reasoning of the court in Franzen is twofold. Number one, VAT was, quote, the subject of harmonisation, which was within the scope of the EU. And two, there was, quote, strategic importance of VAT collection for the EU budget. Deciding a case based upon strategic importance for the EU budget is further evidenced in a later case, Tarico, where the court basically told the Italian government that this particular case fell into the scope of EU law, as otherwise, under Italian national law, the case would have had to been abandoned due to limitation periods. Um, for those of you that don't know what limitation periods are, it's essentially a period of time within which a party must bring forward a claim or start proceedings. And the Tariko case is an example of where the court can, quote, greatly impinge on national procedural autonomy. Now, a case where the court found the charter did not apply is the case of Siragusa, where they found that there was a lack of connection with EU law. The facts of the Italian case is as follows. Siragusa ignored rules on landscape conservation and built on the property anyway. He retrospectively applied for the planning permission and he was ordered to, quote, restore the site to its former state. But he argued that the rules were inconsistent with the right to property, as stated in the charter, and with the general principle of proportionality which is guaranteed under EU law. 
In response to this, the Court of Justice created a test to determine whether national rules are implementing EU law for the purposes of Article 51, when those rules, while not themselves giving effect to a piece of EU law, but happen to be in a field which is related to one occupied by EU law. In this case, the Italian national conservation rules would be linked to the EU environmental protection laws. However, in paragraph 25, I believe, the court created the test to answer the above question, whether that legislation is intended to implement a provision of EU, the nature of that legislation, and whether it pursues objectives other than that covered by EU law, even if it is capable of indirectly affecting EU law. And then lastly, whether there are specific rules of EU law on the matter or capable of affecting it. In paragraph 26 of the judgment, the court finds that the Charter cannot be applicable where the related EU law in the subject area does not impose any obligation on the member state with regard to the situation at issue. The European Commission gave observations to the court concerning all the texts that were brought forward from the parties in an effort to show the link between EU law and national law, including all sorts of directives and regulations, and even the TFEU. And one by one, they were shut down, pointing out that some regulations were not even aimed at member states but to EU institutions, and had nothing to do with the facts of the case, which I found to be rather amusing. So, essentially, the Italian National Court failed to show that its planning legislation fell within the scope of EU law, or that it even implements that law. That court found that the case fell outside of the Charter's scope of application. But, as can be evidenced by these two cases that we just ran through, it sort of shows that the court is more likely to apply the Charter to national rules where there has been, quote, stronger EU interest at stake. The court in Siragusa case has been criticised to have given a very narrow interpretation of the very purpose of the fundamental rights, and has arguably favoured the, quote, need to preserve the unity, primacy and effectiveness of EU law, which in turn seems to show that the Charter is being used as an instrument to, quote, the achievement of the EU's own constitutional goals, rather than aimed primarily at ensuring that a minimum standard of fundamental rights protection is always guaranteed when a member state is acting within the EU constitutional system. But let's remember that while the Charter itself, alongside the EU Convention and other conventions addressing human rights, will be used as the basis for interpreting EU measures that use or depend on EU law, quote, the general principle of fundamental rights expressly preserved in the post-Lisbon regime, has long been available for this purpose. Anderson and Murphy remind us that it would be a mistake to judge the efficacy of any human rights instrument by reference only to those matters which come to court. They continue with possibly the best argument for the Charter, quote, which should appeal to Europhile and Europhobe alike. The need for robust and accessible judicial protection for individuals against the ever-increasing powers of the Union and of the Member States when acting within the scope of Union law. And there you have it! I hope this was an interesting episode for you all, especially those who have been asking about human rights and EU law. I will absolutely be doing an episode on the European Convention of Human Rights and the various case law associated with that. And for those listening who aren't law students, I hope this provided some ideas as to how we can actually use the law in real life cases and situations and how it can be interpreted for different outcomes. Now, as to what we'll cover in the next few episodes, I'm just going to say it now so that it's out there in the universe. Um, I'm going to continue on the theme of the scope of EU law. I probably do not need to explain to you why I believe it's so important to understand the amount of confusion as to what the EU actually has jurisdiction over and how far that extends to and all that sort of thing uh, has haunted the UK for so long. 
it's time to change that. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye.